Uh, most movies, they, they start slow, often, and they'll build to this amazing, exciting climax. It probably doesn't matter what sort of movie you like, whether it's a successful rescue or a victory, if maybe it's a sporting movie, or maybe just a satisfying resolution where you go, yeah, that's the way to finish. Or maybe you arrive at the end of a journey. Well, today we come to the end of a journey of the book of Exodus. And at first glance, I must say, it seems like a bit of an anticlimax. It's a story that's had all of the excitement of a great movie. Uh, It's had God's people in slavery, unjust treatment, difficult conditions. There's there's the anti-villain, you know, you've got the villain, the pharaoh. Uh, Then there's the conflict with the hero, and then there's the miraculous rescue. Pharaoh's army's destroyed, and Israel finally arrive at Mount Sinai, where they worship God. Now, that's all by chapter 19. But at first glance, that's where the excitement stops. Israel doesn't move from the foot of Mount Sinai, um, from chapter 19, all the way to the end of 40. They're just camped there for 21 chapters. Uh, By comparison, at first glance, they're chapters that seem a bit disappointing. They're short on action. They're long on detail. They're a bit thin in terms of plot. But they're full of information and lists. There are lots of laws uh, at Mount Sinai. Do this, don't do that. Chapters 19 to 24. Then lots of instructions about how to build the tabernacle from 25 to 31. Then there are a few chapters about how close Moses is to God when he meets with God. And then finally there are some more chapters about how the tabernacle is actually built. Uh, And large sections are repeated word for word from God's instructions earlier on. That's 35 to 39. So there's 19 chapters of action, 21 chapters of information. And surely we think that the writer has got that the wrong way around. That he surely could have cut down that second section uh, and it would all be more interesting. Unless, of course, those last 21 chapters are the really important ones. Unless they're the climax of the whole story. Unless they're the high point And I think that's exactly what's going on. Because the whole point of the rescue, of the slavery and the rescue, was that so God could dwell with his people and that they could worship him. God actually said that uh, in Exodus 29, verse 45 and 46. He's talking about what happens when the tabernacle gets built. And he says, Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God rescued his people so he could dwell with them and so that they would worship him. Slavery, rescue and finally worship. Well, we're going to begin in chapter 35. Uh, We're building the tabernacle. Uh, God had already given Moses the plans. That's 20... uh, 25 to 31, uh, and now in, in 35, Moses begins and he tells the people to bring all the materials uh, to build the tabernacle. And they obey, they can't wait to obey uh, because they want God to, to come and dwell among them in this tent. And uh, as we read through chapter 35, what we notice is how willing everybody is and how excited they are. So, verse 20 it says, Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. They head back to their own tents 
And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service and for all the sacred garments, all who were willing, men and women alike. As we keep reading, we read about the gold and the cloth and the hides and the precious stones and the spices and the oil. In fact, they just keep giving uh, so much that the craftsmen have to stop what they're doing on building stuff and tell Moses to tell the people to stop bringing stuff. They've got too much. So uh, over in chapter 36, verse 4, we read this. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and, and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord's commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering to the Lord uh, for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more. I don't know if there's been any church in the history of since that has had to tell people to stop giving money, that they've got enough, we've got more than enough. Please don't give us any more. Uh, but that was what was happening here. The people are so keen for God to come and dwell among them. They want to make sure they're ready. They're keen, but they're not doing it on their own. Another theme through these chapters is about how God sends his spirit to help people, giving them the skill and the ability to do the job. So, for example, uh, look at chapter 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. There you go, Alyssa. Craft, craft making, it's a, it's a spiritual gift. There you go, that's good, that's good isn't it? Craft, spiritual gift. Uh, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze. To cut out and set stones. To work in wood. To engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. Uh, but not only the, the, the skill to do it himself, he's given both him and Aholiab, son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Jan, he's given these two guys the ability to teach others. He's filled them, I think that means all the workmen, with skill to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen and weavers, all of them master craftsmen and designers. So Bezalel, Ahiliab and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. So God gifts them to do the work and and that's what they do. They do it joyfully uh, and they make this fine, crafted, uh, bespoke, uh, high quality work. Uh, This this is no ordinary tent. Uh, It's interesting watching people in caravan parks when they put up tents. There's often two sorts of people. Uh, as, as you walk along the rows and you see the tents, there are those where they've sort of put the tent up really quickly so they can head off to the beach. And you can see the ropes. The ropes are a bit loose and there's a few tent pegs missing here and there and the canvas sort of droops a bit. But, you know, they're down the beach. That's what counts. But then most campsites seem to have at least one person for whom tent setting up is a matter of pride. And they want to make sure every rope is tight and every pole is straight and the tent pegs are all lined up in a line and they're all perfect and they're all hammered in at the right angle and the right distance. And that's the sort of attention to detail that we've got here. 
there's skill, uh, there's God-given ability. Uh, they're making something that's fit for a king. And that's the point. Uh, well, finally, flip across to chapter 39, verse 32. Uh, everything's finished. The work of constructing it all's finished. And the people bring all the pieces to Moses. Uh, verse 43, Moses inspects the work and everything gets the tick of approval. And uh, then as we move into chapter 40 that Michael read for us, we see how Moses set up the tabernacle. And once again, we get this pattern of instruction and then obedience. Uh, Verses 1 to 15, we see God's instructions for how Moses should set it up. And then from verse 16 on, we we get the detail of how Moses obeyed. Now, that's a familiar pattern. Do Do you remember when we got the instructions about how to make the tabernacle? We had chapters 25 to 31 were the instructions. And then we had the actual... Uh, obedience of those instructions, 35 to 39. We've got that same two-fold pattern, except it's sort of shrunk down into chapter 40. So that's one thing to notice about these uh, chapters, uh, these verses. We've got God's instruction, Moses carrying it out. And that's the other interesting thing. I I don't know whether you picked it up as uh, Michael was reading it for us, but Moses sets up the tabernacle all by himself. Like, this is a, a major thing, but... As we read it, it's telling us that 80-year-old Moses does all of it. He sets it all up. I don't know whether you've ever seen a circus going up, to, uh, a circus setting up like their main tent. Um, we, we set up like the main tent at Beach Mission, and that, that's like a major job. It takes 20 or 30 people, basically everybody around. It takes 30 people an hour or two at least. Uh, it's a big job, but verse, from verse 19 on... This reads like Moses himself is is doing it all by himself. I think probably uh, we're meant to understand that he was responsible for it all being put up. You know, a bit like when we say Pharaoh built the the pyramids. We don't mean Pharaoh on his own built the pyramids, but uh, he oversaw it all. Uh, One example I think that sort of lends uh, lends that understanding is verse 21 where it says Moses carried the ark into the tabernacle. Now if we know anything about the ark of the tabernacle, it was this big box, you know, maybe like something like this size and it had two long poles, one down either side and you'd have four guys who would carry it on their shoulders. Now it would be impossible for one person to carry that. So I think we're meant to read or meant to understand that Moses oversaw the tabernacle being put up. But it does beg the question, I think, why does it say Moses did everything? Moses did it just as the Lord had said. I think maybe that's a a hint as well. Uh, Verses 1 to 15, we've got God's instructions. Verse 16 onwards, Moses, who hears the instructions, makes sure they're carried out exactly the way God said So the blueprint has been copied perfectly, exactly the way God said. Then finally, verse 33, everything's ready. Moses has finished everything. Aaron and his sons have all been washed, freshly scrubbed, ready to serve. Uh, and, And they all stand back to see what's going to happen. And it's time for God to visit, verse 34. Uh, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. God was true to his word. He, he talked about leaving, uh, just abandoning the people and, and sending them off on their own, but, but he hadn't betrayed his promises. He'd kept his promise. He was with them, not just then, but moving forward. As they travelled into the land, he'd be with them. And we're told he arrives in his glory. Now, now glory is this word that's come up a few times in Exodus. It's, it's about being a visible representation or a visible revelation of God himself something that people can see. He's an invisible God, but he reveals himself in a way that's visible. Uh, Glory is connected to the cloud that led the people through the desert. Uh, Back in chapter 16, verse 10, we read, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Uh, A few chapters further on, chapter 24, they They've made it to to Mount Sinai and all the people are around the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, And we read in verse 15, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. So it's up in the sky, it's away in the distance and then it becomes on top of the mountain and now here in chapter 40 God's presence has come down right into the middle of the camp and it fills the tabernacle for everyone to see. So notice the progression, God is getting closer. The cloud in the sky, the cloud on Mount Sinai and now the cloud right down in the midst of the camp. Uh, This is the goal, this is the end point, the conclusion And yet there's still something unsatisfying about it. Did you notice the problem? Did you see how uh, things finish up? The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter. God is right there among the people, but no one can meet him. Not even Moses can go into his presence. All that action from chapters 1 through to chapter 40 of rescuing a people and bringing them to himself so they could worship him, but there's this barrier, there's this block in the way to meeting with God. It's like one of those movies that finishes in that completely unsatisfying way. You're sure that the two main characters are going to get together, the guy and the girl, and you you, you can see all the signs, but then something unexpected happens, and, and the movie finishes, and you go, what was that? Like, I knew it was going. Why didn't they get together? And it's a bit like that here in Exodus. What do you mean that God and his people are not going to be together the way we'd all assumed it was going to happen? Well, that's what it's like here in Exodus. Uh, Remember, we're only at chapter 2 in a whole story, so it's not like a complete ending, but it's the end of this book. Uh, The complication that happens is sin. Uh, We saw it back when they grumbled. Uh, we saw it back uh, when they sacrificed, uh, when they bowed down to the golden calf. 
They worship other gods. They refuse to keep their side of the agreement that God made with them. And it separates them from knowing and worshipping God. And so Exodus finishes with this sort of unanswered question, an unresolved complication. How can sinful people approach a holy God? How can they come into his presence? It's a question that that gets answered in more detail in the very next book in Leviticus. If you just flip over the, the page, you can see God immediately starts to spell out the types of sacrifices that the people had to offer. But even then, the sacrifices, there's an unsatisfying uh, conclusion to them because they have to keep being offered. Uh, They're only a temporary solution. Uh, God permits an animal that's offered in faith to die in the place of sinful humans. He permits a sacrifice to smooth the way into his presence. But it never actually pays for sin. But what it does do, each sacrifice looks forward to another sacrifice, to a once-for-all sacrifice, to the death of Jesus. We get to Jesus in almost every sermon I preach, and, uh, and in this one I want to I get there by following this thread of God's glory, this, this golden thread that weaves its way through the Bible. If we pull on it, it, it surfaces in interesting ways. So, for example, we've, we've had the glory that descends on the tabernacle. Uh, a, a while later, Solomon, once the, once the people have settled in the land, he, he builds God not a tent but a, a permanent temple. Uh, and in 1 Kings chapter 8, once again, we're told that God's glory comes down and fills the, teb- tabernacle, uh, fills the temple, just like it did the tabernacle. But once again, there's a problem. The priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Moses couldn't enter in, let alone the people. And here the priests can't do their job. They can't enter, uh, let alone the people. There's still a separation and it's still caused by sin. If we jump forward a few hundred years... Uh, Israel strays strays from God, they worship other gods and in fact in the time of Ezekiel they're even sacrificing to other gods in the temple and God has had enough, he's warned them. Uh, The prophet Ezekiel receives a vision in chapters 10 and 11 where he sees God's glory departing from the temple. Uh, It's shocking, God is leaving the home that he Built, uh, he wanted built for himself. He's departing, he's abandoning the temple because of the idolatry that's going on. And he keeps his promise and Jerusalem is conquered and the temple is destroyed and the people are exiled to Babylon. Eventually, 70 years later, they get to return and the, the exiles rebuild uh, the walls and then they rebuild the city and then finally a new temple Uh, begins to be constructed under the direction of Ezra and Nehemiah and a governor called Zerubbabel. And there's a prophet who encourages the people to build the temple. His name's Haggai. And through Haggai, God promises that one day he will return to the temple and one day he will fill the temple with his glory. And here's what Haggai 2 verse 4 says. 
Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I'm with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory. God promised it. Before long, with Haggai's encouragement, the people finished the temple, and yet there's no record of God's glory ever filling that temple, that second temple. The way it had with the tent, the tabernacle, the way it had with the first temple. And so the people waited. They waited for this promise to come true. They they waited for the glory of God to come to the temple, uh, for the the one who's the desired of all nations to come, uh, for that momentous event when God would shake the heavens and the earth. And they waited 500 years, uh, and still there was nothing. Until Until the day God kept his promise and his glory descended, And he finally visited his people again. And the desire of the nations, the one who was desired of the nations, finally came. And the prophecy of Haggai 2 was fulfilled. We read this verse last week, John chapter 1 verse 14, describing Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, says John. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here John is describing Jesus as the glory of God, the the visible revelation of God, just like a cloud, just like a fire. Jesus who who dwelt, who pitched his tent among humanity. Uh, Jesus who revealed what God is like, who revealed his glory in his life. Uh, He was full of grace and truth, his words, his compassion, his anger at injustice his patience, his faithfulness, his obedience. He revealed what God was like in life. And he comes and he visits the temple, just as Haggai said he would. John chapter 2, God's glory comes into the temple and he pronounces judgment on it. Just like God had done on the first temple, Jesus pronounces judgment on the second temple and he, he clears out all the money changes. And then he declares that in his body, he'll replace the temple. Uh, His body. Uh, He's thinking about his death. Because you see, even more than Jesus' life, it's Jesus' death that reveals God's glory, that reveals God's character. Ultimately, it's on the cross uh, where the heavens and the earth will be shaken, when the whole world will see God's glory That word glory, it appears again in in John chapter 12. uh, As Jesus is thinking about his arrest and his death, it's a couple of days before uh, the Passover, and he announces, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be revealed, to to point people towards the glory of God, that the time has come. What's he thinking of? I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. See, Jesus understands that it's in his death 
that he will reveal God's glory. Because it's the cross where God's love and justice will meet and be displayed. It's in Jesus' death that we see the answer to the question of Exodus, of how sinful people can approach a holy God. It's Jesus' death that shakes heaven and earth. It's Jesus' death uh, that tears the curtain, that separates the holy place from those who are waiting outside. It's Jesus' death that invites you and I into God's presence, confident and forgiven and worshipping. And over the last 2,000 years, millions and millions of people have done just that, accepted Jesus' invitation into God's presence. And they've become the church, which is God's temple, where God dwells by his spirit. Those millions and millions of people have become God's glory, his visible representation of himself as his spirit dwells in us. Yes, we come to the end of Exodus today, but the end of Exodus isn't the end. It's only the beginning, and God is at work among us and in us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. Uh, we've gone on a journey, just as Israel did, and uh, we pray that as we move beyond uh, this book of Exodus, that you might go before us. Uh, we thank you that we don't have to follow a cloud uh, or uh, pitch, our, pitch our, our tents around a tent, uh, but that we can know you and uh, follow you because your spirit dwells in us uh, and because of the work of your son, Jesus. Uh, we thank you for your word, not just the book of Exodus, but for your whole Bible that points us to you and shows us how we can follow you and how you live among us. Please help us to be your glory, uh, to reflect your character and your goodness and your truth and your justice. Uh, may we reflect it in our relationships with one another so that the world might see and know that we are Jesus' disciples. Amen.